I think there's so many people that want to tell you what self-care is, what boundaries should look like. And I think it's so individual when you're being honest with yourself and your needs, which is a hard place to get to. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. We all have our own road to walk. Nothing's perfect and there's going to be a price for everything. There are no rules. Welcome to The Resistance, featuring meaningful conversations. I think I'm grieving the death of part of me. It's not about being the star and being seen. It's about That explore that very space between who we are and who we say we want to be. I'm your host, Matt Connor. What I thought would be a conversation about the beauty of her debut novel, Grace, quickly turned into one about balance and self-care. That's because the title of acclaimed author is one of so many hats worn by Natasha Dion these days. When we sat down to record this episode of The Resistance, I knew Natasha was busy as a practicing attorney, a professor at UCLA, being a wife, and a mother of two. What I didn't realize is just how busy she was with other things. For example, the nonprofit she started called The Redeemed Project that works on criminal reentry, or the fact that she's going to seminary herself on the side. There's also special family demands and other creative projects like her own podcast. We'll let her tell you all about it. But it's quite a feat that she has time for anything creative, and we're certainly thankful when she does because she's such a gifted storyteller. Grace, which is out on Counterpoint Press, was named a Best Book of 2016 by the New York Times, The Root, Kirkus Review, and more, and it was featured in Time, People, the LA Times, and others. Her latest book, The Perishing, is due this November. On this episode of The Resistance, Natasha speaks openly about the power of her faith to fuel all this activity and what she's learned about balance and self-care in the midst of so many demands. We appreciated her carving out even the space to talk to us, and we think you'll enjoy this conversation too. Here's the latest episode of The Resistance with wonderful author and so many other things, Natasha Dion. Hello, and welcome to The Resistance. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Today, we're graced with the presence of Natasha Dion. Natasha, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for asking, Matt. How are you? Yeah, good, good. You know, we'll dive into all the normal things that we cover in the resistance on a typical podcast, but it's just hard to divorce this conversation from the context we're in, which is global pandemic, heavy social times, (laughs) etc. Are you you faring at least okay, keeping your head above water, as you say, or or does sunny California help, I'm I'm assuming? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're in February, it's Black History Month, it's about 70 degrees outside, it's beautiful, and the sun helps a lot, you know, from, you know, I'm light sensitive. So I lived in London for a while, and it got really difficult towards the end when it was Mm. rainy, in short days. So I'm, it makes me feel better, but no, I'm not exempt from the effects of this COVID season. And, and I don't know if there's a word for it, but I'm personally well and safe and my family are personally healthy and safe, but you know, I'm still grieving the rest of the world. People who are losing people, losing jobs, loneliness, 
all of that. So my heart goes out. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that is a weird balance to be okay. And yet grieve that everything is not okay. I I mean, maybe that's part of the, (laughs) maybe that's part of the resistance, but also individually for you, I'd love to know how you'd respond. We begin every episode with the same quote. Uh, in our source material, it comes from a book by a writer, Stephen Pressfield, in his book, The War of Art. And in his book, he leads out with this quote. I'd, I'd love your take on this. He says, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands the resistance. I know earlier we were talking that you just have several plates that you spin and and you can feel free to define those even now if you'd like but but what does resistance look like for you these days as an author and then in whatever else you'd love to explore Sure sure um you know and I get that question often they're like how do you do this I'm like I just keep walking that's it so I'm a I'm a I'm an author <laughs> and I'm also a mother I'm a practicing criminal defense attorney um, I'm a law professor and creative writing professor for UCLA and Antioch, and I'm also a student in seminary right now, getting a wow. master's of science and psychology. Um, so there's a lot of, and I take care of my mom and my son has special needs, um, mm. and I'm a fortunate wife with a partner who, who you know, makes this a, a group effort. Family's a group effort, so <laughs> you know, I'm fortunate in that way. So I'm always just saying to myself, you know, because of probably my worldview, um, is that I, I get to do these things or even more specifically, God lets me do these things. Cause there was a time when I was really sick for about six, six months straight and almost bedridden. And I remember praying often saying, if I can get up and do more, I want to do more. I want to be able to take advantage of my life, my life. You know, I'm still young. I'm still able. I just can't get out of the bed right now. And so mm-hmm. as soon as I was healed or, or better, you know, I went through um, a couple of surgeries and I felt good, you know, and I said, I want to make the most of it. So when I think of the quote that you just read about us being two people, the life we live and then the unlived life, you know, I kind of set that aside a long time ago shortly after that, when I decided I want to live integrated. And what that means integrated is putting all the parts of myself into one person so that I don't have to remember who I am because this is who I am all the time. And being integrated allows you to be truthful and honest with yourself and with other people in a kind and loving way, obviously, but just walking in your integrity like, I, I don't have to remember if I told one person one thing and somebody else something else. When I walk in a room, I can have my lawyer mind. I can have my creative mind. I can have, you know, my mothering role and my teacher role. And I walk as one person. And I know it's really hard to do in our society, especially when we go to work and there's hierarchies and there's different cultures. But I have to, for me, I have to be myself at all times, but also walk in humility of the cultures that I have the privilege of being a part of, whether that's, you know, on a Christian campus or whether that's in a club in Hollywood or, you know, in a different culture, like literally, whether I'm in Armenia or London, but just being humble, but still being myself. 
So I'm not two people living two lives unlived. I'm doing the, I'm living the life that I want to live as best I can and, and, and giving myself permission to grow, to be wrong, to change and apologizing and asking and forgiving myself, you know, so that's what it means to me to live integrated. Can you take me to like when you said I was laying there thinking, God, if you let me get up, I want to do more. Now that you're doing more, what are you finding out about, you know, because there's a whole other conversation about healthy boundaries and self-care there. And yet, if you've had some sort of extreme experience, like, I just want to live life to the fullest, it just feels like there could be these sort of, you know, these extremes that work against each other. I wonder what tension you feel there or not. You know, I feel pain often. So walking sort of in your fullness doesn't mean that you're like walking around skipping and happy. Actually, I feel more pain now, (laughs) you know, because... (laughs) Because you feel other people, you see yourself in other people. There's no passes. Like, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you can't ignore what's around you. So self-care to me is because people define these things for us, like boundaries and self-care. Like America has a specific way of what that means, which is very Western. And I don't think we realize it when we're in it. So for me, boundaries look very different than what it means, I guess, in the in the popular culture, pop culture boundaries. You know, so as for instance, as a Christian person, and I see and I usually don't talk about my Christian views like this, but I am when we talk about boundaries. So from a biblical perspective, like everybody who achieves something great in the Bible cross boundaries. Like it's the woman who's bleeding, who reaches out to Jesus and holds his hand. It's like all these people crossing boundaries, doing things they shouldn't do. So boundaries look very different for me because sometimes I know I have to either be that bleeding woman who's reaching out for healing or I need to be, I'm not Jesus, obviously. But if I was that person, I have to be able to say, you know what? I need to stop for a minute. Something is happening here. I need to be present here. And so boundaries to me isn't simply saying, you know, I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to draw these lines. I draw lines, but I know that they can be crossed and I'm not offended by it. I try not to live in offense. Um, The other thing we talk about self-care, people will say, oh, you know, self-care is, I don't know, for a woman, getting your nails done, your hair done, or going on vacation. And for me, when I think about what self-care means to me, especially being a mom and just, you know, parenting, just is a mind fudge, right? You're just like, you you can't just think about yourself, you know, and you can't explain it to non-single people who don't have, you know, I get it, you know, you know, it's just a different world, but it's not just, self-care isn't just about escape. It's about doing what is life-giving to you, whatever that is. So sometimes what's life-giving to me is gardening. And then all my plants will die because I have literally a brown thumb, (laughs) you know, so that's not life giving. It's devastating. I killed some living things today, you know, or sometimes it's just sex with my husband. You like, I, you know, being in that moment or sometimes it's just taking a drive, you know, being in a space where I'm quarantined still because my mother is 80 and she's a black woman 
and having a son with special needs who is also susceptible to some bad outcomes with COVID. You know, I like going on a fake uh, commute, you know, because I'm used to going into court, driving into court every day or to work. And so now being quarantined, I'll get in my car and I'll drive about five miles and then I'll turn around and come home, park and then walk in the house, Mm. you know? So like I try to trick myself that way, but it's whatever is life giving. And I think there's so many people that want to tell you what self-care is, what boundaries should look like. And I think it's so individual when you're being honest with yourself and your needs, which is a hard place to get to. It, It feels like there are several doors open for you and, you know, writing and teaching uh, learning, obviously, the the law, you know, practicing law, etc. How much do you wrestle with knowing what door to walk through, where to give your time? I, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there. That's a great question. Like where to give your time. It's whatever feels right. I've, I actually see, I kind of pose the question to myself in an opposite way. Like what is the easiest thing or what, what hurts me to do right now. And sometimes it is writing. Sometimes it is showing up for clients. And I have to look at those things and say, what can I set aside? What can I not do today so that I can be okay? Because there are times, I'll be honest, that well, well, it could happen even, I would even say every day, where I'm thinking where it hurts me to even do something to walk today. And I'm like almost to a point of tears just to send an email that's hard to respond to. Not because it's a particularly hard thing to do. It's just that I just can't do it today. And sometimes I'll push through because I'm like, because it feels good. And that's part of the way to get over a hump of stuckness is to do the one thing that hurts. But sometimes it's just saying, you know what? That can wait until tomorrow. I need to take care of my mind. I'm going to, you know, sit and watch a show on Netflix or in it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to do something else. It's really, for me, it's making up my own life. And like I said, all of it hurts for me, especially in this time of COVID, with the election, with the harmful, hurtful things that people say, the abuses you know, I have to just play it by ear and give myself permission to do that because so much of our American lives are prescribed. Like, this is what you're supposed to do when you're this age or this age. Oh, you need, you know, so I, I set all that stuff down and it was like leaving a pile of clothes in one step and then stepping to the left and saying, I can leave that there. Now, what can I pick up? What do I want? Um, so that's kind of, how I, how I balance all that. Did that even answer the question? (laughs) (laughs) It it did, but, uh, but I want to zero in on one thing you said, because there was a, there was a real authority to the way that you said it when you were describing stuckness and you said, you know, sometimes you just have to do the hard thing, you know, that maybe you would naturally avoid to get over that. It was the way that you said it that just sounded like, oh yeah, this is, this is one thing I've learned for sure. Oh, absolutely. And some, because the things that bring on, especially the depression as an artist, you know, suffering from depression, um, and it's just an extreme sadness, is it's often a thing that's in my face that I can drag it on for three months, something that would take me literally 10, 15 minutes to knock out. 
Like all you have to do is send this email. All you have to do is make that call to so-and-so and you'll be off the phone in an hour, but you've given it three months of your life and grief and worry. And, but it doesn't make it any better. So you have to choose to take that step to do it because it'll be over soon. I I, I want to shift gears just a little bit here because I know you have a, a new book coming out later this year, correct? Yeah. What can, what can, first of all, what can you tell us about that? It's called The Perishing and it's out in November, um, 2021. We're here. (laughs) It's a historical fiction. So it's, it's set in the 1930s, Los Angeles, and a young black girl begins to believe she'll live forever just as she finds a love in a city worth dying for. So that's sort of the elevator pitch. It's about love and loss and loss over time and love over time. I mean, some of those themes were also very clearly in grace. I would love love to talk about what it's like to follow that up. In what way did you feel a shadow from grace, which really seemed to be very well received, a lot of acclaim, and, and rightly so? What's it like to sort of proverbially put pen to paper after that and and start over again did, did you feel a sense of okay how do i follow this yeah you know i i didn't try to follow it necessarily but it but like you said all those ghosted themes you know carry over into the new book so actually there's parts of grace that are seen in the perishing as if it's a follow up like it's related so there so there are characters that you might see in the next book or a part of it in sort of supernatural ways. So I tried to, I tried to carry it on. So it became an accidental follow-up, <laughs> like the, <laughs> it's not quite the prequel, but it does cover prequel. And then after, cause it's set in the 1930s instead of the 1860s. So it's, it's sort of a follow-up because we never really let go of the things that plague us as writers. And I say plague us, but I mean like haunts us, like America is haunted. We have so much history that wants to be heard. And as artists, we tap into the things that are around us. And some of those aren't just relegated to our five senses. So it is a follow-up to grace in, in many ways. And it's about love and and the love that's in grace is mostly mother daughter, but also love, relational love. So, did that answer your question? I was like, "What am I talking <laughs> <Yeah>. about?" <laughs> You're totally fine. You're totally fine. I'd love to hear more about your own your own writing background. I, I was trying to understand it myself, and it just seemed like there was quite a bit of time between grace and. I mean, going back that there seem to be some writing awards or, or fellowship or something. And then there's like all these years where maybe l- practicing law came in or family, et cetera. Like, was there a waiting for you to sort of launch the writing career in a way that you'd wanted to? Yeah. It's like, so people often say, oh, look, she was an overnight success. Like that just doesn't happen <laughs> for anyone. Mostly. I mean, there are, there are social media stars and stuff, but most artists are in this for the long game. I've, and as a writer, I've been writing since I was, since I can remember. I remember creating games for my little sister when I was five years old, six years old, and it, they would have stories. And 
So I always wrote stories or I always rewrote for instance, Bible stories, I would write my own version. You know, so I, I was always writing, but my parents came from a small town in Alabama. And when they came west during the Great Migration, you know, it was a big deal that their children would be a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer. So writing was not even an option in my household. <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, it was, you know, and I even think of it now that this, that way, that it's a privilege to be able to write. To be able to say, you know what, I'm not going to have a traditional life for whatever that whatever that means to the person, because I want to dedicate it to my art. It is a privileged position, and it's one that's hard. Like you say, it's the resistance, because nothing wants you to create like that, even though it's so natural for us as human beings to create biologically, psychologically. So I've always written. I became a lawyer because I could still write. I could still retell the stories of my clients. I can go in deeper about motivations. Why is this person doing this thing? Um, or why is it unlikely that what they're telling me is a lie, you know, what, or what they're telling me is a lie or the truth. Um, so I'm always using those skills. I've always written, but I didn't take it seriously until 2010 when I made the plunge saying, you know what, I am going to do this. So I quit my job. And I began to to write seriously. And at that time, I got a um, fellowship with PEN America. And then from there, just sort of moved on and just became dedicated to this art form. And, and you know, and nobody's, for artists, we know that nobody's like waiting for your work. Like, we're, especially writers, you're writing this thing. Nobody's like, oh, we can't wait. You know, they'll give you that compliment. But I mean, life goes on whether you deliver it or not. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's up to us to get it past the imaginary finish line so we can do the things, whatever it's supposed to do. So this is my 11th year of like full dedication to my writing life, but also still practicing law. What did those early days look like? I mean, because, you know, Grace came out then, what, seven years into your timeline. Mm -hmm. What did those early days look like without, like, when maybe some of the tangible successes weren't there? You know, I think it was, had it not been for, and this isn't, I'm not intentionally plugging PEN America, but I am as an Emerging Voice Fellow when I came into writing as a whole, I was lucky that they were the first person I ran into in my journey. And not everybody gets that. Some people decide to write and they're just writing in their room. Their mom is writing or they're going to a class and you have writers of different levels who are either giving you good advice or terrible advice and you don't feel as confident. But I was lucky that they were my first step because they said, you can do this. You're a good writer you can do this. And then they introduced me to other writers and they were very much um, encouraging, but also critical enough to say, you know what, this is hard. So I had a very realistic, I guess, perspective of what it meant because as, as artists who apply for things, there's a lot of stuff I haven't gotten, you know, even now, like I'll apply for it. A scholarship. Nope. It's like, you know, it doesn't, it, none of that changes, you know, but you also, as an artist, you're like an actor, an actor, you go to all these auditions and you're not going to get everyone. You know, you're, you would see the same actors all the time. You know, you're, you're going to be turned down. So you have to get used to being rejected. 
the same way an actor would. And as a writer, that's what what happens, you know, because people are looking for a certain thing or a certain voice or a certain look. And you have to understand that you're not for everybody. Not every you're not everybody's ideal. And that's okay. You mentioned earlier the imaginary finish line. Is that easier for you to cross now than it was five years ago? No, no, it's probably (laughs) (laughs) no, because I mean, because as as an artist, you have to have a healthy self appreciation, a certain ego, right? To believe that I can do this. Oh, they're (laughs) wrong because they didn't love me. I mean, there has to be some, but then there's some people that will hurt you because they are right. And you're just like, okay, let me get it together. And you'll find your trusted people, but it's not, I was still going, you know, going against an imaginary finish line. And when I sold this current book, The Perishing, two years ago, it was on a first draft. So because I was that eager, but I was also that sure. I was like, this is good. This is this. And it was such a horrible, you know, if you write, talk to writers, your first draft is shit. And my first draft was no different. But I was like, this is great. (laughs) But, you know, but I went with my same publisher who says, I know that you're capable of better than this, but this ain't it. Mm. But, you Mm. know, we'll we'll work with you on it. So, (laughs) so (laughs) I didn't, I was more impatient this time for a lot of different reasons, because I think the hardest part is that, okay, Grace had done really well. And the things about books, which I learned after mine came out, is that the shelf life of most books is six months from the date of publication. That's when all the energy goes into your book for six months. So I'm still having interviews. This is now, what, 2021? And that book came out in 2016. So my book was supposed to be over. My tour was supposed to be over like by the end of 2016. But instead, it just picked up because I got the NAACP um, award nomination. The New York Times listed it as a top book in, of the year. And then it just kept growing and growing in the American Library Association, where I met John Lewis before he passed away. And he was like, congratulations on this book. God is with you, all this stuff. And then it wow. was like, so I'm moving. And then it became 28 City Tour. And then you know, three countries. And then I became a a U.S. delegate for Armenia. Like all this stuff started happening and I got further and further away from my release date. And then I look up and it's 2019, 2020. And people are saying, okay, when's your next book come out? And I was like, (laughs) uh, I don't know. I don't know. And they're like, you know, and so you get these sort of sarcastic comments, but when you think about American literature, any literature, most books that we're reading now came out a very long time ago. And I hadn't considered that actually having a long shelf life was not, there wasn't something wrong with me. Like I was living too long on this, on this wave that was, it was just what it is. Like if it's going to, if it's going to hold up, you're going to be there a long time. But nobody I knew had had something like that. Like most people are saying, oh, what about Maya Angelou's and Noah Cagebird Sings? If you look at when it came out or any of the books that we, that are considered class, they came out a long time ago. So I just felt it, I helped, I had to change my perspective 
and not begrudge being on the road, you know, in 2017, 2018, 2019, and then Zoom 2020, and then now here. But I, I stopped being able to write, you know, because all those things take time and energy from the creative process. listening to the resistance if you've enjoyed this episode please rate us on itunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and for more information and further episodes you can find us at listen to the engineering production and additional music by jake kirkpatrick my name is matt connor and i'm your host thanks for listening